I think it's really important that people are learning about research and evidence-based policy and need to understand that it's dependent on politics and it arose from political debates. If you're of a scientific bent and watch the news about policy debates around Brexit in the UK or climate change elsewhere or perhaps drug prohibition in almost every country, when you're doing that, if you're like me, you end up feeling this sort of intense frustration about the dearth of evidence in those discussions. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and welcome to the BMJ Podcast, where today we'll be hearing from the author of a new essay which airs those frustrations and worries that the rise in populism is pushing the evidence even further out of policymaking. I've come to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to talk to Chris Burnell, Professor of Public Health Sociology, about how evidence gets into practice and how politicians and scientists differ in their modes of thinking. I suppose what we're saying is that evidence-based practice and evidence-based policy hasn't existed for very long. It rose to prominence, I guess, in the course of the 1980s and 1990s. And we can't assume that it's always going to be sacrosanct. Uh, it arose, I think, in terms of its history, as a result of trade-offs and discussions between different political philosophies. And our concern is that with the rise of populism, there's a risk that lots of the assumptions that underlie the move to evidence-based policy might get undermined. So... I don't know if it's actually starting to be the case that evidence-based policy in medicine and public health isn't necessarily being undermined in this country, but there's a risk that it could be, and it certainly is in other countries. Mm. So that's what sort of prompted us to write the paper. I mean, on that, you, you mentioned the fact that it sort of it did rise in the 80s or 90s, but we never really got to a golden yeah. age yeah. of evidence-based policymaking. Do you have any sort of sense, looking at this, thinking about this, doing the reading around that you've done, um, about why it was that, you know, even in that sort of short period, we've failed to kind of capitalise on some of the benefits of, of that? Yeah, well, I think taking a step back, I'd just say a little bit about the political roots of evidence-based policy. The people we reviewed in the paper were people like Karl Popper particularly, but also Robert Merton and uh, Donald Campbell. And they were very much coming from the perspective of, I think, you know, being social democrats essentially, believing in the state as a force for good, not being conservatives, not just seeing the need to stick with tradition because that's tried and tested, but recognising that with innovations in social policy or health policy or whatever, there was always a risk of unintended consequences and things going wrong and wasting money. Um, so evidence-based policy rose to prominence in that context. And like anything else, you know, it wasn't, it never has been implemented as thoroughly as it should be, but it does at least provide a benchmark for people to then criticise where it's not happening either you know because the evaluations aren't happening or the evidence is being ignored mm. do you have no, an example f for people outside the uk maybe that um of some evidence-based policy making that you think you know went counter to i don't know that that sort of populist political um model of that was quite good you mean yeah yeah um yeah i think sure start was quite a good example so sure start was an early years intervention um, you know, based on a lot of evidence that kids experience in the first few years had a massive effect on their development and informed by 
previous programs that were evaluated in, in the States. And it was implemented under New Labour in, in the late 1990s onwards in the UK. And it was evaluated, and the first evaluations weren't that promising. And they sort of suggested that the short start was kind of getting colonised by the middle classes. So, you know, I was a beneficiary of this, M my family and I, you know, we live in a relatively poor area of London, but we're middle class, but we benefited from short start services. The evaluation sort of bore that out, that a lot of the services were getting taken up by people who perhaps weren't the key target group. And policy gradually changed to try and improve that. And also to concentrate on the specific interventions that worked versus the ones for early years that worked less well. So I think it wasn't perfect, but it was a pretty good example of where uh, a government went in using evidence and they also changed course where they thought the evidence suggested that. I think there's a risk sometimes that governments start off with the best of intentions, but I think there's sometimes a thing where a government's been in power for a little while where they get defensive and sort of sclerotic and any evidence is seen as a threat rather than a, a chance to make things better. Mm, rather than a tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, sure start is a good example here because we had a change in government who then decided... Uh, as many people say, ideologically, to pursue an austerity agenda. Um, and sure start went. Uh, and that's part of what you kind of, you pick up in the paper, is that kind of um, the rise of ideology and ideological policy making. Do you think ideologues are the kind of the biggest threat here? I think it's a complicated picture. Um so maybe a good example is education, where you know the Tories came in, while the coalition government came in, and in many ways Michael Gove was a very ideological Secretary of State for Education, in terms of his harking back to you know teaching traditional British history and stuff like that. That was obviously based on ideology, not based on evidence. It's not to say that all ideology is bad. I'm not particularly saying that. But um, Michael Gove also did a good thing, which was he um, stumped up the cash for the Education Endowment Foundation, which was the, the body which really sort of pr promoted doing trials and using evidence in the education field. And some of the studies that have been done might very well erode some of the ideological assumptions of Michael Gove. But, you know, it, it, he did a good thing there. So I think it's a complicated picture. Um, Another example might be the Troubled Families Initiative, which, you know, the Tories um, brought in, while well, the coalition government brought in, not based on very sound evidence, and in fact flying in the face of some of the evidence. So it, it, for us, uh, we analysed at the time that it was quite a bad example of policy making, and in, in fact the evaluation, even though the evaluation wasn't particularly rigorous uh, design, it still suggested the, the Troubled Families Programme wasn't working very well. Um, but, you know, the government wasn't awfully interested mm. in the results, I don't think. Mm. Mm. You have some examples in the paper, things from Australia, mm. um, things from the US, people can go and, and have a read of that. And obviously, there, uh, when we think about the US, we, we think about Trump and, and his kind of super ideological approach. And I suppose this comes down to this maybe fundamental, I don't know, disconnect between what politicians are thinking about. Um, we're assuming that people want to go in and govern to the best of their ability and maximise benefit for everyone um, and that putting an evidence-based policy will, will help them do that. Um, but when it comes to something like um, immigration, caps on immigration perhaps, the purpose of that policy 
you know, is kind of based on evidence. It's evidence that this is what will appeal politically mm. to to the base. I think the fundamental problem with populism, um, and by populism, I suppose, you know, it can be both from the left and from the right, and it's uh, a politics more strongly based on ideology, often critical of elites, even if the people making that are themselves members of the elites, often scathing about experts, for example, Michael Gove, some of his pronouncements around um, Brexit, uh, and a, a failure to recognise that there are trade-offs. And I think that's the key thing. I think in private, most politicians are sophisticated enough to know that most policies have trade-offs. You know, you can't have everything. Not everything works perfectly. There'll be positive and negative ramifications from most policies. And the difference between populists and non-populists, I guess, is that the non-populists are more likely to be honest about that and more likely to say, we tried this, it didn't work. Uh, We had quite a nice example of that. We evaluated, my team and I, um, a programme led by New Labour, again informed by work from the US, which was a a, a programme to try and reduce teenage pregnancy um, by providing youth development in after-school youth clubs. And for a variety of quite complicated reasons, it didn't work. And it, in fact, probably increased the rate of teenage pregnancy. And, you know, it was a very difficult evaluation to do and to present. Uh, But actually, Harriet Harman answered a question about it in Parliament. And she was great. She just said, well, we tried it and it didn't work. Isn't that a sensible thing to do? Um, And maybe that's kind of an easy one because, you know, that programme wasn't central to the manifesto of New Labour wasn't central to the ideology of Harriet Harman. But I think politicians have always got to do that. Um, And I always get wary when I hear a politician refuse to admit there's a trade-off. Like John McDonnell was on the radio this week talking about the increase in employment rights. Um, And some of the stuff he was saying was very sensible, but there wasn't much of a recognition that there's always going to be a trade-off between you know, um, employment opportunities and employer protection. And he knows in private that there is, but there's sometimes a reluctance to be honest about that. And I think the populist rhetoric often plays towards that, you know, and and uses that as a technique. Mm. There's something else that goes on with that populism around almost the kind of grouping of ideologies. Mm. you know, someone can be very free market libertarian, um, and that doesn't automatically mean that you should be, I know, pro capital punishment. Mm. But it seems that the the groupings that go on mm. make sort of stick these things together. Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting book uh, that came out I don't know a year or two ago by Jonathan Haidt, who's a sort of social psychologist from the US, and he suggested that there are various moral foundations, which I think he was proposing were sort of intrinsic to the human brain. One was an imperative towards care, one was an imperative towards fairness, one was about loyalty, one was about authority, and one was about sort of sanctity and some things being sacred. And he argues that the left is very much focused on fairness and caring, and the right is to some extent focused on those things, but he's also very much focused on authority, loyalty to one's in-group, and some things being sacred. And he argues that, you know, the left is missing a trick because if it sort of tried to resonate its messages with those moral foundations, it might appeal to more people. And I think there's some truth in that, and I think sometimes the centrist left has successfully borrowed some of those moral foundations 
you know, to, to, to widen its uh, appeal. Uh, and there's a risk if you don't. And, you know, and I, I thought that I don't, I don't, I haven't looked at the, the psychological evidence in support of his theory, but it sounded quite an interesting idea. And that might explain to some extent why people do cluster, you know, because, yeah, as you say, there's no reason why being a libertarian economically might be being linked to being a conservative morally, but often is the case, at least in the current um, time. I think the, the, the constellations of values that different parties cohere within change across time. So, you know, at one stage, the Conservatives would have been economically conservative rather than economically liberal. Mm. Um, but that is no longer the case, obviously. There's something else that goes on with that kind of grouping and that in-grouping that you talk about, where people almost end up, well, evaluating the world through different lenses and in that way looking at a piece of evidence um, and perhaps drawing entirely different conclusions mm -hmm. from the same thing. Um, you know, someone who maybe produces evidence or works in an institution mm. that does and wants to, to you know, get to evidence-based policymaking, how do you think about that? How do you kind of, is that something that, you, you know, is yeah, built yeah. into your process? Yeah, it is. Um, we actually review a little bit of the evidence that confirms that possibility we, we refer to a study which presented evidence from a research study to people to interpret and first of all it was presented to be the data was presented to be about the effectiveness of skin cream in looking after your skin and the best predictor of how people interpreted it was the numeracy you know if, if you were numerate you interpret it correctly if you weren't very numerate, you interpret it incorrectly but then they did exactly the same data but this time the data was supposed to be about the effectiveness of gun control legislation. And then the biggest predictor about how you interpreted it was your political values rather than your numeracy. So, yeah, I think that is true. And, you know, in the paper, we sort of talk about how evidence isn't the be-all and all and end-all of everything because people, to some extent, will interpret it differently based on their values. And you're never going to get beyond values to some extent. But you can still use evidence to challenge those. As an example of me framing evidence in a way that might appeal to different groups i have done that a little bit a lot of my research is about schools and about the importance of schools focusing on the whole student rather than just their educational attainment and you know i used to present it i suppose in a kind of essentially soft left sort of way saying you know we need to look after our young people we need to care about them education in the 1970s used to be much more holistic and wasn't that lovely and you know that's not going to carry much weight with some people including conservative policymakers. so I found myself increasingly presenting it saying you know maybe state schools need to be a little bit more like private schools because private schools do that you know they focus on the whole student and they think about moral character development and maybe state schools need to be a bit more like that so, you know, maybe, maybe it's an intellectually disingenuous argument, but that's certainly, I suppose, because I understand that people aren't going to always interpret the evidence just based on the facts. Mm, mm. Um, part of the problem here is the sort of short-term nature of policy making and valuation against the long-term nature of the outcomes of these things. So, you know, you talk about schooling, that possibly isn't seen for, what, 20 years after yeah. someone graduates, the, the you know, the, the positive economic mm. effects of that. Um, and that, in the, the, you know, the parliamentary system we've got, mm. uh, isn't going to change. Um, 
so I, I, you know, how does how do you square that circle? I suppose or begin to anyway. Well, I don't think you can really. Um, politicians are always, to some extent, going to be short-termist, and you know the way we do evaluations means that often a politician who commissions or is in power when a, a project is commissioned doesn't get, isn't still in power, or certainly isn't Secretary of State when the report comes out. Um, I suppose the only the only defences against the sort of short termism are that where a political culture has more consensus, there's more likelihood of a certain amount of continuity between different politicians and different governments, so that you don't get a situation like in America where you know the, the incoming government basically just tries to take out everything. That's, you know, in the UK, I think there's a little bit. More, well, maybe that's eroding now, but there has until recently been a certain amount of continuity. Often, you know, often there is quite a lot of bipartisan support for for some of the big initiatives. In terms of politicians or civil servants using evidence, the the, the fact that often evidence from evaluations is not timely is a problem. Um, there is no easy solution, but I suppose it's, it's, it, politicians and civil servants shouldn't just make use of the current studies. They should look at evidence in the round, which is why systematic reviews are so important, because you know one study very rarely is a guide to anything anyway. Um, and also, you know, trials and evaluations aren't the only forms of evidence that are important. Understanding about the, for example, the ramifications of one's schooling to one's happiness, well-being and income 20 years down the line, you know, you're also going to make use of evidence from birth cohorts and other forms of research rather than just evaluations. Mm. And I suppose the adverse effects of um, of policy, which might be, you know, how the Daily Mail covers it, happen immediately, whereas the, the, the benefits happen far. So we potentially are asking people to spend political capital on something that, you know, won't pay off for will within their election cycle yeah so sometimes the adverse consequences might manifest more slowly they might be adverse consequences for individuals that you know like drugs are rare and only become apparent with time or there might be more there might be adverse consequences for the whole system so i don't know i was reading a paper the other day which was talking about the involvement of you know tobacco lobby and uh, food lobbies in policy making mm-hmm. That might have particularly adverse consequences, not necessarily for a particular policy, but more for the overall public health system. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think often adverse consequences aren't immediately obvious and aren't always obvious from an evaluation either, because some of the stuff is is rare. You know, you think back to I and mean, we we do this. We talk about Norman Fowler in the Thatcher government when you know HIV/AIDS suddenly emerged on the scene, and. You know, their response was one that, in retrospect, you know, we can say is good. You did the right thing. You put in place harm reduction measures for heroin users and things like that. But at the time, you know, uh, papers came out recently saying Thatcher was worried about this, that, you know, a lot of that public health approach, you know, might have angered the Daily Mail or, or whomever else. Um do you think there's any way in which we can make that more politically appealing? You know, there's, there's almost like a a call to legacy or something. You know, people will look back on your decision-making at that time and mm. say, well done, mm. as opposed to people will look back and say, 
that was short-termist or that was, mm. you know, politically motivated as opposed to mm. the right thing to do. I don't know. I don't know if I've got an easy answer. Um, and I, it, I think politicians, you know... Um, but politicians aren't all bad and you know across across parties often politicians are trying to do the right thing um and i think in in britain our politic isn't completely destroyed you know it's we're not america we haven't got um a sort of howling fracture between the right and the left just yet it may be emerging but yeah, at any moment yeah it's two years down the line it may very well be different uh, and i think it's still possible for people to act as norman feller acted them then you know and, uh, and one of the reasons why he did the right thing was because you know public health was built into government the chief medical officer was incredibly influential uh the lobbying from NGOs representing gay men and drug users was, you know, there was a communication going on. And all those things were a good aspect of our policy making context, I guess. Um, in that particular case, yeah, it wasn't evidence from evaluations that swung it. It was reasoned views of people who were experienced and understood epidemiology you know, that carried the day. Now, you kind of mentioned this, which is, you know, at that point, policy wasn't being able to be made on evidence because there, there isn't stuff. Something that we care about a lot of the BMJ is evidence that turns out to be wrong. And, you know, the, do you think there's been a problem with almost using evidence like this, the shield of saying this is the you know, sword of truth, whereas actually it's not? And that's, that's kind of backfired. I, well, I think evidence... Evidence is a benchmark. Um, it, it doesn't present absolute truth, and every any particular study can be um, limited or even wrong. And an awful lot of research doesn't present evidence about what it thinks it presents evidence on. Um, and that's why systematic reviews are so important because they weigh the evidence overall rather than looking at one study which might be an outlier for various reasons. Um, I think there's more of a problem in observational studies, you know, which look at risk factors for disease or whatever it is, rather than trials. Because in trials, you know, you register your protocol, you, you report on all the outcomes that you said you were going to report on, and people know that trial exists. Where in a lot of epidemiological studies of risk factors, people just decide to do an analysis, they data dredge for something interesting, they don't report on the stuff that's not interesting, and it means that an awful lot of the evidence is garbage, even if it's included in the systematic review. So I think there might be a need for the scientific community, you know, to increasingly use checklists as they're doing for observational studies, but also perhaps to to register protocols for studies to try and remove that kind of publication bias. Mm, but there's also this big gap between the outcome of a study, which is looking at one thing in a particular situation yeah. with a particular population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then putting that into a policy which yeah. affects many more people in a different way. Yeah. I saw um, Ben Goldacre present on this once and he made the point that, you know, if you, we're concerned about the generalizability of research, that's an argument for doing more research rather than less research. Um, my own field is looking at the effects on health of school-based interventions, which are either interventions to educate kids about health or they're to change the school environment to make it more healthy. And, you know, it's very clear that... Um, that you can't just assume that an intervention that works in Birmingham is going to work in Baltimore or Bangkok. Um, and I think 
one of the things we need to do is be much more sophisticated about generalizability. And really, the way to generalize um, findings from studies isn't to just think that because something had an effect size of 0.5 here, it's going to have that effect size everywhere. But it's to start to think more like proper scientists and say, what does this evidence mean for our theories about how this intervention is working? Um, so I've written quite a lot about realist evaluation as being a useful framework. What is that? Realist evaluation says that rather than asking the question what works, you need to ask the question what works for for whom under what conditions. And really what you need to have is a starting theory about how you think the intervention works and then you need to revise it in the light of the evidence. Realist evaluation sometimes presented as an alternative to randomised controlled trials and I don't think it is. I think it's it's two different things. Realist evaluation is useful for thinking about what the purpose of evaluation is and randomized controlled trials are really useful for generating an accurate effect size so i think the two are very useful so i think we're actually perhaps at an early stage in the scientific de- development of an awful lot of public health research and you know we haven't got to being a proper science yet in some ways because we're not thinking theoretically enough evidence can't just be translated into policy in the same way that evidence can't just be translated into a clinical decision you know they always say a clinical decision needs to be made on the basis of evidence about what appears to work at a population level plus the clinical judgment of the clinician plus the preference of the patient and i think it's the same with public health uh, or policy level sort of evidence you know you've got the evidence which seems to tell you what's going to happen perhaps in one or more populations. But that evidence is inevitably from the past because all evidence is from the past. And it won't be from exactly the same population and it won't address exactly the question that the policymaker is thinking of. And the policymaker just has to use their political judgment or their civil service policy judgment to weigh that up with the preferences as they see it of their government or of the population to make a decision. And it's always going to be messy. You know, It's never going to be a mechanical process. I think what... One of the purposes to us in writing the paper was that we is that evidence-based policy needs to be thought of as a political thing. You know, it started off as a political thing in 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 the writings of Karl Popper and and people like that. And it it's easy for it to sort of mutate into just a technical thing. And I think it's really important that people who are learning about research and evidence-based policy need to understand that it's dependent on politics and it arose from political debates. And I think if we ha- if we're all sort of more aware of that, then it would just encourage more of a culture amongst researchers of defending evidence more assertively. You've been listening to Chris Burnell, Professor of Public Health Sociology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And the article that prompted this discussion, Defending Evidence-Informed Policymaking from Ideological Attack, is available now on bmj.com. I'll put links in the podcast text. That's it for this episode. We'll be back soon with research looking at the changes in prescriptions for chronic conditions that patients may have after a spell in hospital, a situation that many GPs will recognise. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that. And you can find our full back catalogue, lots of these kinds of discussions, on bmj.com podcasts. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.